If you have a Bible, I invite you to open with me to Revelation chapter 2. Revelation chapter 2, while you turn there, let me just express my gratitude to Dr. Allen for having me back here on campus and uh, to be at this incredible conference. Uh, my soul is, is full, and it's just been glorious to be here, to be among uh, the students and uh, all who came for the conference and to see this stellar faculty. I told Dr. Allen he's assembling the Avengers here at uh, Midwestern, and uh, it's just great to be here. It's great to get uh, Dr. Chipman's new book uh, as well, and um, just really uh, always uh, from a distance admiring all that's happening here. Uh, Revelation chapter 2, uh, verses 1 down to verse 7, I'd like for us to consider uh, the message uh, to the church at Ephesus. Let's read together. Beginning in verse 1, to the angel of the church in Ephesus write, the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my namesake, and you have not grown weary, but I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent, and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. Yet this you have, you hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches." To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. This is God's word. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your word. <clears throat> we pray that you would open up our eyes to behold wonderful things from it, that we may see who you are, that we may see our sin, that we may see our Savior, and that you would transform us, you would help us to lead churches that love the Lord Jesus and love one another well. May our love never grow cold, we pray. In Christ's name, amen. Perhaps you've heard of these uh, mystery worshipers, or sometimes they're called secret church shoppers. They attend corporate worship services and provide feedback on their experiences at various churches. Uh, they're like these mystery shoppers who show up at particular places and uh, give feedback on the type of service that they have received. And these mystery worshipers are supposed to uh, give you feedback as to how first-time guests are being treated and, and whether or not they were, they were made to feel comfortable. Now, our church has never had a mystery worshiper that I know of, but I stumbled upon a review in 2013 of my friend Steve Timmis's church in Sheffield, England. This church, Steve's church, the Crowded House, uh, had a mystery worshiper. She was unsolicited. Uh, Steve gave me permission to share a bit of her review. So here are some of the questions that these secret church shoppers uh, are to, to answer. What was the name of the service? The 9.30 a.m. service. Very creative. How full was the building? The building was pretty full once the service started. It was difficult to estimate the numbers, maybe a hundred or so. Most were young families with children with just a few gray heads visible in the crowd. Did anyone welcome you personally? As I entered the building, I was greeted by a welcomer stationed at the door. As I stood inside wondering where to sit, someone else came up and introduced himself and pointed me in the direction of the hot drinks. Later, during a break in the service, someone else came and chatted. 
one of the friendliest churches I've been in. Was your pew comfortable? Most people sitting on, were sitting on padded chairs, but as these were all taken by the time I sat down, I was seated at the back on an old pew against the wall. It was not very comfortable. How would you describe the pre-service atmosphere? The noise of chatter hit you like a wall when you entered. What were the exact words of the opening of the service? There were two or three worship songs, and then an anonymous person leading the service said, Welcome this morning to the crowded house. What musical instruments were played? Piano and guitar. Was the worship service stiff upper lip or happy clappy or what? There was no set liturgy. The format included some hymns and songs and some prayer for the church community and the sermon. The hymns were sung with enthusiasm. Exactly how long was the sermon? 40 minutes, but it felt like two hours. (laughs) I added the two hours part. On a scale of one to 10, how good was the preacher? An eight. Steve Timmons spoke clearly, and his talk was obviously tailored for an audience that included new Christians. Did the service make you feel glad to be a Christian? I drove away from Sheffield with a real buzz from the service. (laughs) What one thing will you remember about your, your time at the service? The genuinely friendly welcome I received. Now, these are not all unimportant questions, but they are quite surfacy and consumeristic, aren't they? Here's a deeper and more Christ-centered question that we need to ask regarding our church. What does Jesus think of your church? How would he evaluate your church? That's the review that matters most. And in these seven letters to these seven churches, Jesus is giving a review. He's doing more than that, but he's giving a review. And we see that the Lord Christ knows all. We see that he knows what is good in the church, what's bad in the church, and what must be done to correct what's bad in the church. You see nothing here in these seven churches about the pre-service atmosphere. Nothing about the comfortability of the pews, the length of the sermon. But you see a whole lot about faithfulness obedience, mission, truth, love, devotion to him. I think we should follow the Lord Christ in what we're evaluating when it comes to the church. Now, these seven churches were historical churches located in Southwest Asia Minor, present-day Turkey. I had the privilege of visiting them this past year, and they are uh, in an order that the postman would likely have followed, beginning with Ephesus, moving in a, in a clockwise fashion. And in each of these letters, you have a particular outline. You may sketch it in a variety of ways. This is mine. You have, first of all, this authoritative introduction that is given in each of the seven uh, letters. And it is a, an introduction that includes the mention of the church, the command to write, and then the words of him, that is Christ. And there's something said about the majestic nature of Jesus that is an echo of chapter 1, verses 12, down to verse 20. So Jesus is addressing the church, and some characteristic of Jesus is mentioned in each church that has particular relevance for the issue in this church. And so it's interesting to me that what these, church, what these churches hear first is something about the glory of Christ, Right? And then there's this all-knowing evaluation. After an authoritative introduction, there is an evaluation of the church, either commendation or criticism, or sometimes both. And then after this evaluation, there is an exhortation. 
the appropriate exhortation. Something is, is said to help the church either persevere or repent and change their ways. And then finally, there's this awe-inspiring conclusion. Some eternal blessing or reward is promised to those who heed the message. Now, these seven churches, all of them speak to us. Uh, some of them relate to various types of churches, I think, today. So you might think of Ephesus as a theologically rooted church who really cared about doctrine but was cold in fellowship. Smyrna, you might liken to a modern-day church in the 1040 window. They are told to be faithful to death. They're being faithful. They're small, but they're being told to persevere. Pergamum and Thyatira are very similar. You might liken them today to maybe a youthful church that lacks discernment or a liberal church that lacks conviction. Sardis, you might think of as a megachurch in the Bible Belt or the Midwest. They have the appearance of life, but they're dead. Philadelphia, you might think of that church as sort of an urban storefront church. Or again, maybe a church like something in the 1040 window. They're small, but they're faithful. And then there's Laodicea. This is like a big affluent church that's apathetic today. Christ rebukes them for their, their smug self-sufficiency. And he appeals to them to pursue wholehearted devotion to him. So think about this. Two of these seven churches are commended entirely. Smyrna and Philly. Now what's interesting is both are small. These were in, these were very, you know, these were churches of, of little significance in terms of numbers or influence. And yet Jesus commends them. Jesus commends a lot of church, I would believe, that people today are not drawn to. It's more important to be faithful than famous. This doesn't mean, by the way, that all small, small churches are faithful and all big churches are unfaithful. Uh, obviously, that's not the case. We know a lot of small churches that are evil. And <laughs> there are some big churches that are faithful. The issue is, is the church faithful to Christ and to his word? Two are commended entirely. Three are rebuked for spiritual apathy and coldness. Ephesus, Sardis, and Laodicea. And then two are rebuked for tolerating false teaching. Thyatira and Pergamum. So think about this. Five of the seven need serious correction. And yet, as bad as these churches were, no one is ever told, go give up on the church. Sometimes you hear it, don't you? I wish we could return to the way things used to be in the first century. Well, here they are. Five out of seven need to be rebuked. The church has always had issues. The church was never what it was supposed to be. Have you read 1 Corinthians? Right? And we have epistles because correctives have to be given to these churches. But no one's ever told to give up on the church. This is Jesus' church. So the issue today that I want us to think about is what does Jesus say to this church in Ephesus? What does he think of the church? It had many strengths. But it lacked love. It lacked that which is essential. And you know, it's very obvious when someone falls in love. They can't hide it. It's on their face. They talk about either a person or a thing or maybe a team or a hobby. Or today people are talking about trendy foods. Like avocado on toast. And cauliflower posing as other foods. <laughs> You will never be crust avocado or cauliflower. You're not pizza crust, so just give it up, will you? 
But over time, those things that you love, can, it can grow cold. Ephesus had the truth, but they lacked love. Now, I picked this particular church on purpose because I'm in a theological institution that cares about the truth. And I told our church, unless you think I'm picking on you guys, of all the seven churches, this is the one that I think has the most relevance for our church. We're a church, Imago Day, that prizes truth. We prize exposition. But I don't want our hearts to grow cold. It's possible to have both. Right doctrine and a warm heart. The study of truth should lead you to deeper devotion to Jesus and a greater love for people. For we study the truth not to make the head fat, but the heart right. And so let's heed this word. The authoritative introduction, verse 1. He says, to the angel of the church in Ephesus. I don't want to go on about Ephesus. You know this was an influential city, the supreme metropolis, they say, of Asia, the center of uh, idol worship to the goddess Diana, the Roman name, or Artemis, the Greek name. One of the seven wonders of the ancient world was this temple. Emperor worship was also practiced there. We know according to Acts 18 and 19, uh, Paul, Priscilla, and Aquila founded this church. And then Paul had spent about two years uh, there in Ephesus teaching. His ministry had led to a a riot uh, uh, related to the temple of Artemis. They had a long legacy of great leaders, Paul, Timothy, John. But notice it's not John who's addressing this church, though he would have known this particular church well. It's the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. Now think about this is a historic church with a great past, but in just a short amount of time, this is the church that had lost its love. These angels, this seems to be some representative angel for each church, which demonstrates a reality that the church is a a spiritual entity. There's nothing on earth like the church. The words of him, you see that throughout these seven letters. This is sort of a New Testament counterpart to thus says the Lord. Jesus on equal footing to Yahweh himself. And then the identification of Christ. He holds the seven stars in his right hand who walks among the seven golden lampstands. Notice that he holds the seven stars. Now we know according uh, to verse 20 of chapter 1 that these seven stars are these angels. These seem to be some kind of representative or perhaps personification of the church. And the idea is that Jesus holds the church. It's his church. They belong to him. And the text says here in verse 1 that he walks among the seven golden lampstands, which we also know, according to chapter 1, verse 20, represent these churches. Jesus is walking among his church. Now, we see earlier in chapter 1, if you look back there, that Jesus is in the midst of the lampstands. Chapter 1, verse 13. But now it gets intensified. He's not just in the midst of the lampstands. He's walking among the lampstands. That is, Jesus walking among his church. This is why I want my life intertwined with the church. This is where he is. I love the the tagline here, for the church. Jesus is for the church, isn't he? He's walking among the church. He's not an absentee landlord. He's in the midst of her. So we should sense his nearness in the church. In the garden, God walked with them in the cool of the day. And here Jesus is walking 
among his church. It's intimacy. It's awareness. He cares for the church. He has authority over the church. He's present and watching the church. He will discipline the church if necessary. That's the introduction that's given to Ephesus. Now, I think it's significant that even though Ephesus is being, direct, uh, being addressed specifically, the idea of the seven lampstands represents all of the churches, right, that Jesus is walking among his church. And it's probably because Ephesus was this mother church. You remember in Acts 19, it says that all of Asia heard the word. That likely these, these churches all originated in this church plant in Ephesus. Ephesus was this very significant mother church of this region. It had a great heritage, but it seems to have led to pride. It seems to have led to a coldness. Isn't it true that often churches that have great histories fall prey to pride and can grow cold? A blessed past is not a cause for present pride. It must never be an excuse for just coasting dispassionately through life. How many of you know churches that continue to live in the glory days? They remind me of Uncle Rico on Napoleon Dynamite. Have you ever seen that great theological movie? Who's just can't get over the fact that he's not a high school quarterback anymore and he wants to go back to those days. We can't go back to those days. Ephesus had a great past. What a history. What a significant church in the history of Christianity. And in not many years, they get rebuked for losing their love. Let that be a warning to us. This is the introduction. Now notice, secondly, the, the, the all-knowing evaluation. Verse 2, I know your works. You see that in every one of these churches. I know, I know, I know. Jesus knows it all. He doesn't need instant replay. <laughs> he doesn't need slow motion. He knows everything about the church. He misses Nothing. And what you see here is that there is a commendation that's given to the church and then a correction. What is the commendation? Notice, he says, I know your works. So Jesus is pleased with the church. They were doing some things well. They were not lazy. They were diligent. They had not grown weary. The Lord takes notice of our works. It's good. And that's clear from this passage. One of those works that he had taken notice of was their battling for the truth. So if you're doing that, praise God. Jesus commends that. He knows your works. Secondly, he knows their patient endurance. It wasn't easy to be a Christian in Ephesus. It wasn't easy to be a Christian in any of these churches. It's not easy to be a Christian in many parts of the world, including modern-day Turkey. And Jesus is aware of their, of their endurance. They no doubt had endured slander and mockery and alienation. Notice verse 3, he says, that you are bearing up for my namesake. This is the motive that should be in our hearts, for his namesake. And there are other churches that are commended for this kind of endurance. Chapter 2, verse 10, the church in Smyrna are told to be faithful to death, and then uh, Sardis are told to, to uh, or excuse me, Philadelphia, to hold fast to what they have. Thirdly, notice their commitment to sound doctrine. He says, you cannot bear with those who are evil. You have tested those who call themselves who are apostles and are not, and you have found them to be false. Now, this is in great contrast to Pergamum and Thyatira that were very tolerant. Syncretism had made its way into those churches, but not in Ephesus. Jesus essentially says, I commend your intolerance. These guys have wrote in and said they were apostles, and you said wrong. 
false apostles. Now you remember Acts 20, Paul says that some of this sort of thing is going to happen. Wolves are going to come in. And it did. And this church stood its ground. And Jesus commends them. Verse 6, there's another group that's mentioned, the Nicolaitans. They also were not tolerated by those in Ephesus. So this is a good thing. We want Jesus to say this about our church, don't we? You labor in my truth. You seek to be precise. You recite the truth. You sing the truth. You pray the truth. This is why we plant churches. We want the nations to be saturated with sound doctrine. All of this is good. Jesus commends the church in Ephesus for these things. And then verse 4, but here's the criticism. I have this against you. You've abandoned the love you had at first. You've lost your grip on your love. Perhaps they've spent so much time fighting for doctrine that they've become an angry church. That never happens, does it? A story is told about an American general who was watching his soldiers fight, and he says, how I love it so. But he wasn't talking about the flag or his country or freedom, but the fight itself. There are some Christians that can take on the same demeanor. You can smell it on them. They love to fight. Now, a doctrinal fight is often to be waged for sure, but it's with the end in mind, isn't it? It's not the fight itself. You have lost, he says, your first love. Now, what is this? Is this love for Christ or is this love for people or is it both? I take it to be both. Both objects are possible here, but I think it's best to keep these two together. It seems that it's a general attitude that's being addressed. It's, it's their heart condition, a coldness. They've lost the love they had at first, I think meaning back when you were converted, back when you were new to the faith. And what characterized someone who's new to the faith? They love Jesus, and they love his church. They love people, right? 1 John 4 is a great parallel, verse 19. We love because he first loved us. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he's a liar. For he who does not love his brother, whom he has seen, cannot love God, whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must love, also love his brother. If you go back to Acts 19, you see what this looked like, right? They were burning their magic books. Paul says in Ephesians 1 in that prayer that he thanks God regularly for their faith in Christ and their love toward one another. Their lives had been marked by zeal for Christ and love for one another. Grant Osborne in his excellent commentary says, they had lost their first flush of enthusiasm and excitement in their Christian life and had settled into a cold orthodoxy with more surface strength than depth. The second generation of the church had probably failed to maintain the fervor of the first. They had fulfilled Christ's prophecy in Matthew 24, 12, the love of many will grow cold. It is clear that Ephesus loved truth more than they loved God or one another. This does not mean they were not believers or they had no love at all, for the commendations in verses 2 and 3 would be impossible if that were the case. Rather, their early love had grown cold and had been replaced with a harsh zeal for orthodoxy. Is that you, Christian? Remember John 13, Jesus says, this is how they'll know you're my disciples, by how you love one another. Let's, let's be aware of becoming a church of loveless orthodoxy. If you're in spiritual leadership, 
in a church in any way. A church that has right doctrine but is devoid of rich fellowship with Christ and with people. It's very interesting to me that Paul ends his letter to the Ephesians, Ephesians 6, 24, this way, Grace be with all who love our Lord Jesus Christ with love incorruptible. And in just a few years, about 30 years since that benediction has now passed, it's all it takes. And they they hear this rebuke. Stott says, regarding the church here in Revelation 2, they toiled with vigor, but not with love. They endured with fortitude, but not with love. They tested the message of their teachers, but had not, no love in their hearts. You know, the labor becomes easy when you love someone, right? You remember Jacob worked for seven years, but it only seemed like a few days because of his love for Rachel. I didn't go to musicals until I married Kimberly. I grew up very blue-collar on Tupac, and, and now we have season tickets, and I go to about eight a year. Mary of Bethany pours a year's wages on Jesus' feet and wipes him with her hair. But without love, we become grumpy, self-absorbed, arrogant, and cold. You can see it in a marriage, can't you? Couples just sort of coexist. In fact, I heard a story about a guy who left his wife at the gas station and drove 40 miles before he realized that she wasn't in the car. (laughs) It wasn't until he asked her for a mint that he realized she was not in the front seat with, with him. And we must guard against this slow drift, right, to coldness or just going through the motions with our relationship with the Lord. It's possible to, to affirm the right things, to be doing good things and have the wrong loves. So think about those commendations in verses 2 to 3 and ask yourself some of these questions. What drives your hard work? They're commended for their work. But is your hard work motivated by pride or a desire to, to, to be praised rather than out of love for Christ? You can even prepare a sermon without loving people. One of my mentors, Brian Chapel, said when he first started preaching, he used to write at the top of his sermon notes, love the people. Because you can just sort of become a machine gun firing out information and not, not have a heart of, of love as you prepare and as you preach. Or the other issue they're committed for, their discernment. What drives your doctrinal discernment? Do you just enjoy being right? Or do you like pointing out the errors in other people? Are you a heresy hunter with no friends? An online truth warrior who has no relationship with people in a church? Or the other thing they're commended for, their perseverance. Why do you persevere? What's your motive underneath it? Is it because you love Jesus? You love people. You love his church. Now, before moving to this exhortation, just notice how jealous Jesus is for his bride. Five of them receive rebuke, but Jesus has not given up on his church. He's not given up on you. If you've lost passion, if you've grown cold, there's good news here. Jesus is wooing you back. He's calling us back. Jesus himself knows only one way to love, and that's wholeheartedly. And he wants our hearts. So notice here the exhortation, verses 5 and 6, the appropriate exhortation. In each case, after there's the evaluation, Jesus tells them what to do to get it right. And here's what Jesus thinks about loveless orthodoxy. Verse 5, remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent. Do the works of 
You did it first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. If you don't heed my word, he says, I will remove your lampstand. That is, you will lose your status as a church. You might look like a church. You might have a crowd, but according to Jesus, you won't be a church. The one who walks among the lampstands can blow the flame out. And so it gives him three actions to take. Notice it here. Remember, repent, and resume. Remember from where you have fallen. Memory is a very important aspect of spiritual renewal, isn't it? Throughout the Old Testament, we hear this call to remember. The prodigal son story, he's in the pig pen, and he remembers how good he had it in his father's house. The memory is not, again, to recall the glory days, but it's remember so that you might actualize it in the present. Make your past love your present love. Keep remembering that day in which the cross meant everything to you. Remember that day in which you were singing with all of your heart. Get back to that. Remember and then repent. That is, make a decisive break with your present situation. Not the kind of thing we often hear today. When something moves you, repent. No, Jesus says, right now, repent. Make a break with it now. Not merely confessing a wrong, but changing action. And then resume. Do the things you did when your love was passionate. So kind of Jesus to deal with his church this way. Calling us back, wooing us back. Jesus loves his bride. He loves his church. Now again, this doesn't mean we give up doctrine. In fact, that might be why, verse 6, the Nicolaitans pop up after he's just talked about, you didn't you know, receive false apostles. And so we can't distort his message here. It's not a little less doctrine and a little more love. No, 100% of both. We can't turn this into sentimental ignorance that characterizes so many churches. There's a lot of that's going to be addressed in the, in the other churches. A love for people never means acceptance of sin. We need an informed mind and an inflamed heart. We need both. So he turns back to this subject in verse 6 to doctrinal integrity, perhaps because he anticipates this sort of thinking. That way we need a little less doctrine. No, he says, you have this going for you. You hate the works of the Nicolaitans. Now, this is important because in some circles, there's no such thing as heresy anymore. I mean, in some institutions, you can even find a Buddhist teaching New Testament, an atheist teaching theology, an agnostic teaching the New Testament. But God is not passive when it comes to false prophets and apostles. False teachers destroy people's lives. Remember what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 13, love rejoices in the truth. It does not embrace error or evil. It's like Jesus is saying here, you're hating what I hate, false teaching. But here's the question, why do you hate it? Is it out of love for me and people or because you like to fight? Or because you want to be viewed as intellectually superior? Now, it's hard to define what this this false teaching consisted of, the Nicolaitans. It pops up again in the seven churches. It seems to be something along the lines of this. Most of these churches and in these contexts, the workers were part of a trade guild. And every trade guild had its own idol or idols that you were to sacrifice to and worship. And the Christians were in a, in a, they had a problem because they could not worship an idol. 
And so the Nicolaitans and others would ride into town and give you an out and sort of baptize it, perhaps in Christian terminology. Like Paul says, we're free in Christ. Paul said there's no such thing really as an idol, so it's okay to worship an idol. Something along those lines, whatever it involved, it involved, it, it involved idolatry, and it involved probably a measure of immorality. And so Jesus is coming back and saying in verse 6, you hate their works. I don't, I don't commend that. You're doing this right, church. So that leaves us here in verse 7 now, again with this challenge, to have a great love for Christ and his people while holding firmly to the truth and being courageous in a world that wants to edit God's word or dismiss it altogether. We need an informed mind and an inflamed heart. And that leads to the final part here in verse 7, the awe-inspiring conclusion. The end of each of these seven letters, there's a promise drawn from the end of the book of Revelation. And here, notice it. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. The one who conquers, overcomes, Nikaio, Nike. Nike's in the Bible, not Adidas. But I prefer Adidas still. Uh, one who conquers. And in this case, it's the one who is heeding the message and overcoming. That is, those who overcome loveless orthodoxy with a persistent, lifelong devotion to Jesus. I will grant to eat of the tree of life. According to Ignatius, this church did heed this warning, repented and became a thriving church. I will grant them to eat of the tree of life. That is, to eat of this tree, that is to enjoy God's kind of life, to enjoy eternal life. We hear Genesis all over this text, don't we? Paradise lost. Our parents sinned against God and was expelled from the garden, resulting in no access to this tree of life, no access to paradise, to sweet communion with God. This tree reappears again in Revelation 22 too. It's paradise regained. And access into God's presence and blessing is possible through Christ and one day will be enjoyed fully at the eschaton. Jesus invites us to it. He invites us to it. The faithful will eat of it, will enjoy it. And so the message to Ephesus leaves us with some really simple questions, right? Very basic questions. Do you love him? Do you love your brothers and sisters? Are we marked by love? How can you increase your love? I would suggest to you it's not by looking first at yourself, but it's looking at Jesus Christ. All eyes are directed to Jesus in the book of Revelation. We love him because he has first loved us. Meditate on him until your affections are warmed. See his great love for you demonstrated at the cross. This is how we know what love is. John says he laid down his life for us. One writer says the cross is the blazing fire at which the flame of our love is kindled, but we have to get near enough to it for its sparks to fall on us. So get near his love. In the words of the psalmist, forget not his benefits. Consider his triumph. Consider the glory to come. As McShane said, for every for every look at yourself, take 10 looks at him. Don't look within first. Look to him. And as you look to him, may your affections warm. 
May you have a deeper love for Christ today and for your brothers and sisters in the church. May God keep us from becoming the church of cold, loveless orthodoxy. And may we be a people who have an informed mind and an inflamed heart until we see this King ourselves, Jesus Christ, who is worthy of everything. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your word today. We pray you would make us men and women zealous for the truth, eager to learn it, to defend it, to preach it. And I pray in so doing, we would be motivated with a heart that loves the Lord Jesus and wants to see people know this gospel and worship the Lord Christ. Give us big hearts, we pray, as we study your word. In Jesus' name we pray. Everybody said, amen. Amen.